Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike sits down with Amitabh Acharya of American University to unpack Amitabh's new book, ASEAN and Regional Order, Revisiting Security Community in Southeast Asia. Amitav and Mike assess the current state of ASEAN, its durability, and the meaning of ASEAN centrality. They also discuss the role of the Quad, U.S.-China competition, and U.S. engagement with Southeast Asia. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. We're going to talk about ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, arguably one of the most successful international organizations in modern history, and also one of the most maligned and frustrating because of the consensus-based rules and what seems like less of a role in an era of great power rivalry. Or is that the case? We're going to try to unpack that with perhaps the greatest scholar we have in the United States, arguably anywhere, on ASEAN and ASEAN's history, Professor Amitav Acharya, who is the UNESCO Chair in Transnational Challenges and Governance and Distinguished Professor at the School of International Service at American University, where he uh, leads the ASEAN Studies Initiative. I had been reading uh, Amitav's work for, well, I don't want to make this sound too old, but decades. And in the 1990s, as there were huge debates about the future of Asian order, Amitav stood squarely at the front of what I would call the liberal institutionalist view that multilateralism mattered and could work. So he's been at this for a long time. He has a new book out called ASEAN and Regional Order, Revisiting Security Community in Southeast Asia, which reviews the history of ASEAN and describes its relevance in the complicated geopolitics we see in the region today. Amitav, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Mike. Really appreciate uh, the chance to talk about my new book, especially with you, since, again, uh, as you reminded, we go back a long way. And I think we have participated in each other's projects, uh, edited book projects, and also some events. So this is the first event promoting my book after it was published. So thank you very much for the opportunity. It's great. Well, I always enjoy it. I lean a little more on the realist side, but every time I'm about to get pulled into that dark space, you pull me back. So I'm looking forward to the discussion today. Tell us, Amitav, um, how did you get into this line of work? What experiences and, and scholarly influences got you focused on ASEAN? Well, um, I think the main thing is how do I get to Southeast Asia? And uh, before, uh, as a region, as a geographic area, before I went into ASEAN. So it was in a, I guess it, it, the region was geographical and uh, almost like an accident, like a stopover. So those of you who may not know my background, I grew up in India, on uh, the east coast of India, in the state of Orissa, or uh, now called Orissa, and uh, has very historical links uh, through the Bay of Bengal to Southeast Asia. So we grew up hearing about the region, Southeast Asia, the golden lands. Uh, or Subanavumi, the name of the Thai Thai airport now. So I was always interested in Southeast Asia. But then I started in Australia, on the west coast of Australia, in Perth. So that side of the Indian Ocean, uh, now called Indo-Pacific. And uh, so after I finished my PhD, just before I graduated uh, from Perth, my university, Murdoch University, I went to back, back home to India. And uh, those days, there were no direct flights. I stopped over in Singapore. And I found that in Singapore, I had a member of my PhD committee who was working there, Professor Muhammad Ayub. And uh, I visited him. And he said, Amitav, you should work here, uh, the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies. 
uh, which is uh, now called the Yusuf Ishaq Institute, the leading institution in the world on Southeast Asian area studies, then and now. And they offered me a job without even applying for it. You had just finished your PhD? Just finished. In fact, I hadn't even got my degree. I mean, I had gone to the commencement. We have to warn all the doctoral students that that's unusual. <laughs> yeah. So opportunities matter. Having good relations with your committee members matter. And in fact, I don't know that anybody knows. My first, my dissertation was not about Southeast Asia. It was about the U.S. Central Command. I wrote one of the first books on U.S. Central Command. And so the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies told me that the kind of work you have done on the U.S. Central Command and power projection of the United States in the Indian Ocean and the Gulf, could you do something similar for uh, uh, U.S. policy towards Southeast Asia and Asia Pacific? So my first work was comparing U.S. and Soviet power projection in uh, Asia Pacific. In fact, that was my first article I wrote out of Singapore. So, But then once you're in the region, and this is where things change, I deeply fell in love with the region. I felt uh, like this is where I belong. In fact, uh, to this day, no other place I feel more at home than in Southeast Asia. So I spent 12 years there, but go back. But uh, because of its multiculturalism, and that includes India, by the way. I've never worked in India. I left India when I was 8, 19 years old. I go back every year. But uh, Southeast Asia has a bit of India, a bit of China, a bit of the West, a bit of Britain, the West. So it's some openness and multiculturalism. Uh, the, the idea that anybody can come in and actually live there, feel comfortable, and, and also meet a lot of people. I have uh, been lucky to meet many, many top leaders, presidents, prime ministers, ex-prime ministers. The region is open. And, uh, and this is what attracted me and decided to make this as my primary study and not the Middle East or the Persian Gulf. So that is really the real region. So your book has a lot of pictures that capture that passion you have for the region. And I want to start by asking about the first picture in the book, which is a picture of you and former ASEAN Secretary General Surin Pitsawan, and you dedicate the book to him, passed away sadly a few years ago. His son was my student at Georgetown, brilliant, brilliant guy. I think we ought to start by saying something about Surin Pitsawan, because when people talk about diplomacy, when they talk about statecraft, it's ultimately about people. And he was arguably one of the most important in the history of ASEAN. So why did you dedicate to him? Obviously, you were friends and thought highly of him. But what, what did he matter to this book and to this part of the world? Yeah, I, I think the reasons are both personal and professional. So I met uh, Surin when, uh, Kun Surin, I call him Surin, when he was still the Thai foreign minister. And uh, in fact, the last week of his stint as foreign minister in office, I guess it was a few years into after the Asian financial crisis of 97. And uh, I interviewed him for my first uh, book on ASEAN, Constructing a Security Community on ASEAN. And uh, I found really so impressed. Uh, he was open on assuming maybe he was leaving office, but he was still a very active politician. And we thought he might even uh, become the prime minister. And I met him in his office. He was unassuming. He was uh, very friendly. He is an academic. He did his PhD at Harvard on the Southeast Asia, one of the topics that I also deal with on uh, territorial uh, disputes. And so I, I got to know him. And after he left office, I was, uh, as a foreign minister, I stayed in touch. And uh, over the years, I met him many times personally. And I got him, invited him to University of Bristol, where I was a professor, to get his first honorary doctorate. And I read his citation. So we became personal friends. Then he became ASEAN Secretary General. And uh, I sort of served as an informal advisor. So it's kind of a personal relationship. So we traveled a bit together. 
And he came to Washington to launch the ASEAN Studies Initiative at American University, which is now called ASI, which is still there. Professionally, and this is more important in some ways, although for me, personal relations are far more important, always. But I liked his ideas, and uh, you know some of the ideas. Uh, he is the, one of the first ASEAN leaders to talk about moving away from non-interference, from uh, constructive intervention to flexible engagement. He coined the term non-interference to constructive engagement to flexible engagement. A lot of it is in relation to Myanmar, So that, but also after the 97 financial crisis, when he said ASEAN could not really manage the financial crisis of 97 because it was too beholden to non-intervention. ASEAN is not doing anything about Myanmar then because of non-intervention. So he criticized non-intervention and uh, called for more flexible approach, even if it means interfering in the domestic affairs of member states. That was really revolutionary those those days in the, in the 1990s. Uh, the second idea is uh, his commitment to what is called People's ASEAN. He, both as secretary general, but even before that as foreign minister, that ASEAN is too elitist, which is, we all know is true. And ASEAN doesn't really reach out to the people. And he called for a people's ASEAN, how to get ASEAN to relate more to the civil society. And last but not the least, human rights and democracy. He was, uh, of course, uh, a member of the democratic Thai government. And uh, he was very committed to promoting democracy and human rights. In fact, he's the one ASEAN Secretary General, uh, maybe among any leaders in ASEAN, official leaders, uh, government leaders that have come close to promoting, championing human rights and democracy openly, both as ASEAN Secretary General, but before and after. So those are ideas that I value very dearly also. And I think his contribution strengthened ASEAN regionalism. It gave ASEAN a good face. And, uh, and, uh, And since I have been writing on ASEAN, sympathetically, but also critically at the same time on, on these points. I thought he is somebody I could work with and I could be one of his champions. And I, I am very proud of that. In some ways, Surin Pitsawan captures the contradictions of ASEAN and the potential of ASEAN in his own personal background, right? He's from a Muslim family from the south of Thailand, I think, right? And has grown up with all the, you know, internal contradictions, if you will, but potential of ASEAN and was part of, you know, a real moment of hope at the turn of the century about ASEAN's future. But looking at ASEAN today, there's a lot to be concerned about. And I I imagine if he were still with us, he would be quite vocal in his criticism of where ASEAN is. The consensus-based decision-making in ASEAN, which was necessary, and by the way, is not unique to ASEAN, the EU and other international organizations have that. But China has figured out how to use that to block any action on any issue of concern to China. The best example being of course, the 2016 July decision of the the tribunal on the South China Sea ruling when uh, Cambodia blocked an ASEAN statement calling on China to negotiate a code of conduct. And I was in Cambodia that summer, actually. And Hun Sen publicly said, China gave us $650 million. That's a lot of money. I mean, he didn't even disguise China's interference in the ASEAN process. Completely at loggerheads, really, over Myanmar and what's happening right now. In some ways, the height of ASEAN agency on broader international relations in Asia came at a time when the US, China, Japan, the major powers were each seeking ASEAN affirmation. The, you know, the US and China cared what ASEAN thought. It's not clear China cares anymore. So ASEAN really has not moved forward in the direction Surin Pitsuan would have wanted. And yet you point out that, and I'm quoting from your book, ASEAN's marginalization, even death, 
from ch- changing great power behavior has been predicted a few times before, but each time has proven to be exaggerated. So what is this time exaggerated also? Can you, can you give us some, some reassurance about ASEAN or is this a temporary setback? Or our mutual friend from Singapore said in a recent column, the ASEAN's not a horse, it's a cow. Don't expect it to do something it's not meant to do. So what's going on? Is, is ASEAN doing what it always meant to do or is it really in trouble? So those are great questions. So, but let me just start by making one last point about Surin Pichuan and uh, contradictions in ASEAN. I would call it contradiction. I would say ASEAN's diversity. So ASEAN actually has that diversity, uh, especially at the level of elite and civil society, and even in the level of the government. So, so ASEAN accommodates a wide range of views from the deeply conservative, deeply sort of realist or deeply authoritarian to very democratic, very open, very internationalist. And uh, I can give you examples of uh, in the Indonesia since uh, after Suharto. They, these have been like SPY and Jokowi. They're very internationalist. I mean, SPY in particular, Philippines under Fidel Ramos and uh, founders of ASEAN, people like uh, Tundra Jack, Abgajali Shapi, whom I had the privilege of interviewing. Uh, they are very internationalist. So let's uh, say that ASEAN accommodates a big region, 10 countries, so you can expect that just like economic disparity, there are also political differences always in ASEAN. That gets me to the second part of what you just said, that ASEAN has, uh, ASEAN's death has been predicted before and has survived. Uh, if you take a long view of ASEAN, and I have studied ASEAN in detail from not just its founding, from even two, two decades back before that, my history of Southeast Asia that on which ASEAN is founded goes back to pre-ASEAN period when uh, things like Association of Southeast Asia and Macfilindo, they were created. Uh, they didn't last very long, but ASEAN was successful. But anyway, as a student of Asian regionalism, I think ASEAN has gone through crisis. They are different in nature and source, but they're no less deep and existential. So so if you think of 1975-76, uh, 76 Bali Summit, 75 US withdrawal from Indochina, uh, ASEAN was uh, nascent, very new. 76 was uh, like less than 10 years of ASEAN. Uh, and people thought, how can ASEAN survive as a group of pro-Western states when U.S. withdraws, Britain withdraws from uh, east of Suez, Nixon doctrine? So, so I didn't study ASEAN then, but I studied them in retrospect with the help of primary documents, archival documents, especially British documents. The British had no confidence ASEAN will survive. Uh, the Americans had no confidence ASEAN will survive. Even ASEAN countries themselves thought they won't go very far. So it's in my uh, first book, Constructing a Security Community. And some of it is in this new book as well. Second, look at the 97, 1997 financial crisis, Asian financial crisis. I was in the region. So Indonesia collapses, basically. Suharto goes. Every country loses 10, 20% of GDP. Uh, Malaysia says that 30 years of development down the drain. And there was huge amount of pessimism about economic, if not ASEAN as a diplomatic community, but at least the survival of ASEAN or ASEAN states as independent entities. You also look talk about China. China has always uh, played a kind of a, Difficult role, ambiguous role. Before 1976-77, China was supporting communist insurgencies. Every ASEAN country then, the, the five original members, and China was seen as much more of a security threat then, from a different way, but because trying to overthrow governments by supporting communist insurgencies. And now, of course, China has increased military direct power, but then also China had a lot of strategic power too. In some ways, if you're close to China, what you see is not entirely new. 
And those days, United States was withdrawing after Vietnam from the region. These days, U.S. is at least not theoretically withdrawing. Uh, so I have seen and read about this, and therefore I'm a little less worried about whether ASEAN will disappear. But I think the most important reason why ASEAN will survive uh, and probably not marginalized is because uh, there is a realization, and this is common to all ASEAN members, that if they lose ASEAN, they, they are non-entities. Nobody will care. So they will uh, lose their voice and they will be even easier targets for intervention. Chinese or um, American or... Uh, so that, that realization is there even in Hun Sen's Cambodia, the Tata's Philippines, and, and Singapore, which for a long time had advocated that its relationship with U.S. is much more important than its relationship with ASEAN, but that has changed. So that's why I'm not as pessimistic, having read the deep history of ASEAN for a long time. I have seen this this sort of predictions before, and they have not materialized. So is it fair to say that the greatest contribution of ASEAN to regional stability is ultimately providing a framework for intra-regional stability? When ASEAN was created 55 years ago, about our age, (laughs) <laughs> the, the reality was the, the, the British had a battalion of Gurkhas in Brunei to defend Brunei's sultan from its neighbors. Singapore's defense strategy was entirely about fighting Indonesia or Malaysia. I mean, most militaries in the region were primed to fight each other. That's simply not the case anymore. And the fact is that the great powers have not been able to pull ASEAN apart. And that in itself was the original purpose in some ways, intra-regional stability. And that ultimately, it's not that ASEAN is going to resolve great power rivalry per se, but it's going to inoculate Southeast Asia against it because ASEAN states have found ways to resolve their intra-regional disputes. So that's ultimately the part of ASEAN we should care about. Is that is that fair or should we expect more? No, that's extremely fair what you said. And you have really touched on the heart of my book, my argument, in, not only in this book, but heart of everything I've ever said about ASEAN over the last 25, 30 years. So the ASEAN's main contribution is to the internal, interregional stability of Southeast Asia. It's not about solving Korean Peninsula or India-Pakistan or in US-China rivalry. So the, this is what I call a security community. That one of The book's title is Revisiting Security Community in Southeast Asia, which basically refers to my first book on ASEAN, earlier book, Constructing a Security Community in Southeast Asia. This is an international relations concept that when a group of states learns to manage its disputes peacefully, that doesn't mean there will be no conflicts or disputes or even arms buildup, but there is no expectation that this will conflict will be resolved through violence. So this is ASEAN's single most contribution, which you don't find in many other regions in the world outside of the West. And this is also remains important. Now you talk about uh, very validly military modernization. So, so ASEAN, yeah, in the 1960s and 70s, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, planning against each other, to some extent is still there. But I don't think these countries see each other solving their problems through military force. And that is the sense of a, what is the long-term expectations of peaceful change. I'm using Carl Deutsch's language here uh, that has developed in ASEAN. So it also leads to the next point, very logically, what Pramit said, what ASEAN should do. I have advocated in this book, in the conclusion and through the book, new book, that ASEAN should downsize. Downsize means uh, in terms of uh, how much it takes on, how many issues it takes on. And uh, also ASEAN centrality to me is a very unhelpful term because that means ASEAN can somehow manage 
the problems of the Asia-Pacific or Indo-Pacific. That's way beyond ASEAN's pay grade. I know this is a controversial point. ASEAN should focus on managing Southeast Asia. There's a lot of things to manage there. So ASEAN centrality is the concept that regional institutional architecture, the East Asia Summit, the ASEAN Regional Forum, and so forth, has to be centered on ASEAN itself. It's, it's a very Singaporean idea, actually. But the idea that ASEAN should manage broader regional architecture. Are, so you're basically saying things like the East Asia Summit, the ASEAN Regional Forum, you're not against them continuing. You just think that ASEAN should not insist that every regional multilateral or plurilateral organization be centered on ASEAN. For example, in your book, you're quite positive about the Quad, the U.S., Japan, Australia, India Quad. And a lot of Southeast Asia experts are not because they worry it breaks ASEAN centrality because it's not an ASEAN-centered grouping. But you're quite positive about it. So is that what you're getting at here, that ASEAN should not feel that all regional groupings and plurilateral cooperative mechanisms like the Quad have to go through ASEAN? It's just too much. Is that what you mean? Sorry, uh, let me clarify my position. And uh, on the first question, ASEAN centrality. Now, there is a difference between centrality in the institutions and the centrality in managing security problems. So when you talk about ASEAN centrality in institutions like uh, East Asian Summit or ASEAN Regional Forum, I think that's, uh, that's, that's still very important because it's also, there's no other way. I mean, the great powers of the region don't trust each other. So if uh, China creates an institution, Americans will not support it. Uh, if India creates an institution, Chinese won't support it. So great powers cancel each other out when it comes to institution. ASEAN is the only sort of neutral, honest broker out there. And that is okay. But when you talk about managing problems, I mean, I don't really see why ASEAN should talk about Korean Peninsula uh, or India, Pakistan. So th- these are issues beyond ASEAN's pay grade, so to speak. And ASEAN has spent a lot of time trying to man- uh, talk about these issues without any success. So my uh, point I'm trying to make is that those institutions ASEAN is part of, they're good. But uh, I think ASEAN should ma- get those institutions to work for the stability and security of Southeast Asia, which is already a lot. If you look at uh, Southeast Asia sea lanes, Southeast Asia as a source of uh, transnational conflicts. So ASEAN should harness the resources and attention of those institutions to keep Southeast Asia stable, prosperous, and reasonably neutral, meaning not taking, getting dragged into the, any rivalry. But trying to solve problems in the wider region, you know, I don't know whether that was the original purpose of ASEAN centrality, but I think that's the way people see it, uh, that ASEAN should uh, do this, ASEAN should do that. And ASEAN also spends a lot of time talking about and doing this and creates false expectations, which it cannot meet. So this is like a crisis of expectations, which is a title of one of uh, the sections of my book. On the quad, uh, you might have slightly misread my intentions here. I do not support, or I do not believe rather, it's not my support, that Quad can be a successful uh, strategic or military alliance. I think this will be almost impossible. If you have read my book, Whose Ideas Matter, it has a long argument why military alliances with great powers and weak powers in the region doesn't work, even among Asian countries, multilateral alliances. Bilateral, that's why we have bilateralism. Why there is no NATO in Asia is a concern, a question I've addressed. So, but Quad will be useful in terms of uh, diplomatic, non-traditional security issues. So this is why I believe I was one of the first to advocate that Quad should have a vaccine program. Two days after uh, Biden got elected, I wrote an op-ed for PacNet 
where I said that the Quad should focus on vaccines and the Quad should also uh, have a diplomatic consultation. It's good to have four countries, four democracies in the region come together. But the downside is that why ASEAN countries don't like Quad so much? Because they didn't create it. None of the Quad members are ASEAN members. They didn't, uh, so ASEAN doesn't like anything that it was not a party to creating. Uh, so they see the direct frontal challenge to the institutional centrality of uh, ASEAN. But I don't think they will totally think it's a bad idea because Quad actually gives them some kind of a reassurance against China. So, but they know how to publicly support it. So maybe Quad Plus is a good idea. So having bringing in some countries like Indonesia, if you can, I think it's going to be very difficult. Uh, um, but I think Quad should become a kind of a diplomatic and uh, security in the broad sense rather than security in the strategic sense. And that is what I would think will be good for the region. Yeah, I'm struck by your proposal that ASEAN should downsize its ambitions in terms of managing extra regional bombs, North Korea, Taiwan Strait. I think that's right. After five years in the White House, so I can tell you, you're not going to get the Secretary of State to go to the ASEAN Regional Forum or the President of the EAS if they can't talk about North Korea or Taiwan yeah. Strait. So, but what you're saying is ASEAN itself should not feel that it's responsible for coming up with solutions. It provides a platform which the great powers can use to talk about these issues. The ASEAN Regional Forum is one of the only places where, for example, the U.S. Secretary of State and North Korean Foreign Minister can arrange a meeting where you can set up trilaterals and quadrilaterals around issues that are outside of ASEAN. So that convening piece of it, I assume you'd want to keep in place. I have to say on the Quad, I think you're right. I was in the White House when the Quad was first created in the midst of the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, and it was about providing public goods. It wasn't vaccine at the time. It was you know, search and rescue. But that's fundamentally what animated the Quad is these four maritime democracies providing public goods. Where you and I may have a different view, though, is as the Chinese military threat expands out to the first and second island chain and into the Indian Ocean, and precisely because of ASEAN's failure to sanitize itself against that threat, we can have a new version of this in two years to see who's right. I predict that if the PLA keeps this up, you will, fe you will see increasing military cooperation among the Quad countries. You're already seeing naval exercises. Precisely, not a collective security arrangement, not like NATO, but more military cooperation because of the direct Chinese challenge to the Indian Ocean and the Western Pacific. And I think in, in many ways, the Quad's rise, and it is clearly a key part of the diplomacy for the US, Japan, Australia, and India now, the Quad's rise, I think, is directly related to the failure of ASEAN. ASEAN sounds like, and I would agree, deserves an A or an A plus for creating a security community, as you said, but it hasn't received an A-plus for sanitizing itself against Chinese intervention. ASEAN has proven very porous diplomatically, militarily, even in terms of infrastructure, very porous. And I think that is an aspect of ASEAN that, frankly, is animating the Quad to compensate for that. I, I'll give you a chance to push back, but that piece of what ASEAN, I think 10 years ago, people hoped ASEAN would do, it's not doing. It's not capable of providing. It can create a security community, but not a security zone, not as not an area that is that is free from interference. The Chinese are moving with great impunity on the air, at sea, in cyberspace, and that directly challenges uh, the American, uh, Japanese, Australian, Indian interests. I don't disagree with you. I just wanted to make a um, couple of points very clear that the creation of ASEAN from the, was a kind of a built on a norm of non-participation 
in military alliances. So ASEAN was kind of created out of the ashes of CETA, although CETA continued to exist in 75. But even Philippines and Thailand got disillusioned with CETA and the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization, and they sort of sided with regional cooperation through ASEAN because they thought uh, alliances are not very helpful. They're provocative and they're provocative to their potential enemies. Those days, Russia and China, now it will be China. And uh, and also they will... Uh, also, they don't really address the real security problems of the region, which are internal, interregional. What can CETA do against a military coup, for example? So that is a normative element that has some path dependency. But uh, right now, that doesn't mean the four countries of Quad cannot go, go ahead and uh, do their own thing. I'm saying that some countries will be happy with the Quad. I think Singapore would be generally happy. So when you say ASEAN is unhappy, it doesn't mean all the countries. I think a future government of Philippines will be happy because uh, you are basically creating a pushback against China. So that's okay. But I think my concerns about Quad also is practicality. I think uh, India will never really push to the extent of making Quad a full-fledged alliance because India is too vulnerable uh, to China. And, and it knows that too much participation in Quad will increase Chinese pressure. It's like a security dilemma in some ways. Uh, and Japan, you know much more about Japan than I do, but I think you can see that Japan will be also cautious. Look at the Japanese statement in the G7 a couple of days ago. They're not completely siding with the U.S. policy on China, although they are. Uh, so I think there will be some caution on the part of the Asian members of a Quad to turn it into a full-fledged military alliance because they are directly vulnerable uh, to Chinese counterpressor or countermove. But that doesn't mean Quad will not have military exercises, which was already happening anyway, in some ways, and uh, sharing of information, military industrial cooperation. Uh, all these things can happen, but an alliance is giving mutual guarantees of security, like the one you have with the US-Japan alliance. I don't see that happening in the Quad for a variety of reasons, practical reasons, and also uh, reasons for not provoking China too much on the part of India and maybe even Japan. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I don't think the Quad is going to become a... There's not, I mean, it would take extraordinary Chinese stupidity <laughs> to yeah. turn the Quad into a NATO or US-Japan, US-Korea-style alliance with a mutual security guarantee. But, you know, the U.S. participated in World War I without a security guarantee to Britain. Um, the U.S. fought under Australian generals without a security guarantee to Australia. So I, and there's a real stat, I think, and, and we'll see. A lot depends on China. China doesn't seem to be backing down, and um, it, it will not be a security treaty. I agree with you on that, At least, unless, as I said, China does something very dumb. You know, in the book, you your chapter on the U.S. is, is subtitled something like uh, the U.S., uh, the unreliable. And looking at history, this is not the first time this has been said either in ASEAN. There's a almost a cottage industry, especially in Singapore, of predicting that the Americans will, you know, cut and run just like the Brits did. And it's almost, I think they must teach it in raffles and other Singaporean schools <laughs> and uh, that fear of abandonment. In your earlier comments, you made it sound, and I agree, like it's, it's not like the Guam doctrine. It's not like the British pulling out of the east of the Suez and all that. But what would you say is the genuine concern about the U.S. in Oslo yeah. right now? And, and what can we do about it? Okay, but if you allow me, I'll just go back to Quad for one second and make one more point. I actually was giving a talk to the Indo-Pacific Command just like two weeks ago uh, in Honolulu, and they are, this thing came up, although I was talking about history. But I think the most important contribution America can make 
is freedom of navigation, freedom of seas. And I actually told them historically how the Sultan of Makassar told the Dutch that uh, the sea has never been controlled by any country. The Asians do not have a tradition of uh, extending their sovereignty to the sea before the Portuguese came in. So the United States should actually find comfort from the Sultan of Makassar uh, and the Indian Ocean tradition than from the Europeans who actually destroyed that tradition. And they were very happy with that. The U.S. Pacific, uh, Indo-Pacific Command has actually a historical mission. I think if an quad has an absolute imperative to keep the sea lanes open, and, and they completely agree with, on that. And, and that's the one thing that is absolutely vital to the peace and prosperity of uh, the region. And that, so this idea that the law of the sea has made countries greedy. So everybody is uh, getting into, this is my territory, this is my sea. But Asia has no tradition, uh, especially Indian Ocean, of controlling the sea. So you can tell this to the Chinese as much as you can tell the others. But uh, going back to the point about uh, U.S. unreliable, I think uh, th- this formulation comes because of two reasons. Uh, uh, I always felt that it was partly a tactical kind of ploy to get American attention, and second, to make Americans feel guilty. So I uh, lived in Singapore for more than a dozen years, but uh, I think Singapore, you're right, Singaporeans raise this more. This is a way of uh, t- getting attention. That, oh, you are leaving us. You're not reliable. And, and it catches attention. They're successful. This becomes a topic of conversation. Now I'm in Washington for 12 years. I've seen this come up every time. So I would not uh, think of it. I don't think others are too worried about it outside of, uh, you know, Singapore. Some countries may be happy about it, like Cambodia, maybe in the current regime. But I think generally there's no question that Southeast Asia, uh, in general, wants the Americans, the United States, to stay and provide balance. There is no question about it. So here I don't disagree with uh, what Lee Kuan Yew and others have been saying. But that doesn't mean they really think U.S. will go away. But where the unreliability comes in is actually diplomatic engagement. So you saw what happened in 2019. That's a picture of my book, Robert O'Brien, sitting his back to the camera with uh, three ASEAN countries leaders participated because the United States did not send even a cabinet level member to the U.S. ASEAN summit. Contrast contrast that with the pictures of Obama I have. Like, you know, it's uh, friendly and uh, nice and, uh, and I go back only to the Obama period in this book and look at how Trump looks uncomfortable holding hands with ASEAN. There's another picture in the book. The pictures can tell a thousand words. So it's the diplomatic unreliability and the lack of attention, the lack of respect. And uh, if you look at uh, another part of my book where I quote the, well, Yusuf Isaac Institute study, and I had already anticipated that. When it was clear that Biden will become president, uh, and that's when the poll was being taken, American credibility went up compared to the previous year survey. America as a trustworthiness went up quite significantly because they thought a democratic administration, and this is not to question previous Republican administrations, but they compared with Trump's unreliability and they uh, they felt the snub that not having a cabinet minister in an ASEAN summit, East Asian summit, as, a, as, as an insult. And many ASEAN leaders and ASEAN commenters felt that. So the unreliability is probably at the diplomatic level and uh, level of commitment to institutions showing up is very important. And uh, in terms of a discourse of uh, U.S. is withdrawing, to me, this has always been a bit tactical and uh, deliberate and manipulative in some ways. You know, around the same time as the ICS survey, CSIS did a survey 
in America and around the world on China policy. So we asked whether Biden or Trump would be better just before the election for dealing with China. And a majority of Vietnamese said Trump would be better. So yeah. within ASEAN, there are very different views of how much hard power you need and how much multilateralism. But the weird thing is the multilateralism is so easy. It's not hard. You just have to show up. And it is a bit surprising given how much the Biden administration is emphasizing that America is back and emphasizing diplomacy that we have not nominated an assistant secretary of state for East Asia. And my, if my count is right, as of our recording, seven of the 10 ASEAN ambassadorships are still open. We haven't announced uh, or filled them. So it is surprising, given how easy in some ways it is to show respect and engage, that even the Biden administration, which prioritizes that, isn't doing it. They're not stepping up. You know, I, as a student of Southeast Asia, not just of ASEAN, but Southeast Asian domestic politics and history, I cannot overemphasize how symbolism matters. I mean, I know if you look at... Uh, Clifford Good Theater State or, uh, you know, all kinds of symbols. Southeast Asians believe in symbolism, face, and personal touch, which is uh, difficult sometimes for the United States to appreciate. Although I saw the American state officials are very smart. I mean, state or defense or White House. And o Obama was, and also there was a big dropout from Obama to Trump because Obama spent years in Indonesia. He was like a family. And I think he might have spoiled Southeast Asian countries, leaders a little bit, because they got used to having this very personal, very you know, affectionate uh, uh, sort of uh, touch with Obama. And then he found somebody who doesn't care. He may care, but doesn't show it. Didn't even go to many, most of the meetings. So I think that is really the important. And, and if you look at within ASEAN countries, maybe Singapore is not really a representative of ASEAN. Singapore is too transactional and too practical in that sense. And I don't say that in a negative way, but uh, what's in it for me? And maybe we're not so emotional and sentimental as uh, the Javanese or the Thais or others. I think you should uh, take into account there is a cultural dimension to it, which Obama was able to push the button very well and Trump didn't care. Even though I do know Trump administration, State Department officials did care, but uh, they were not making all the policy. So I guess uh, that's going to continue to be true. When you deal with a country with a different culture, different history, and also... I mean, look, just look at the optics of the symbolism that when Obama got reelected, he went to where? Myanmar, VNTN. Uh, can you imagine an American president going to VNTN or Yangon, you know, in normal, in normal circumstances, unless you have to, you know, conquer the country? Uh, and these things do matter. And I, I think that's what was missing in, uh, in the Trump years. And this is something that should be kind of a long-term sort of a suggestion or warning for United States. Although I can understand, you know, if it, you know, Biden doesn't go to the region because of uh, the COVID pandemic or because of Myanmar, I think they will understand it. But in a normal year, if you don't go, not even an election year, and I'm 2018, Mike Pence went, not Trump. I think ASEAN countries do take note of these things. I think historians will ultimately judge that President Obama's pivot to Asia was really a diplomatic pivot to Southeast Asia. That was the main thrust of it. And the policies towards uh, Japan or Australia or the major U.S. allies were, were little changed from Bush or Clinton continuing that trajectory. So I think, but it is not a transition or shift or pivot in American foreign policy that is difficult to sustain. 
It's not because these narratives really matter. It doesn't cost us a lot. The Quad, by providing vaccines, as you suggested in your PacNet piece, shows we care about ASEAN. ASEAN success, ultimately, the way we should think about it is ASEAN success is America's success. It's not going to solve the big regional problems for us. But if we don't have a successful ASEAN, if we have more of a vacuum in Southeast Asia, those problems are going to get worse. And and the burdens on us for security are going to get worse. And it's not that hard for us to invest in, invest in ASEAN. And, and I'm, I'm going to conclude by recommending everyone read your book. It's not a super long book. And it's got basically everything you need to know about ASEAN's history and trajectory and where some smart U.S. investments will have a big dividends. So, Amitav, thank you. Congrats on the book. Appreciate you joining us. There's thank a new you. Singaporean street food restaurant in Bethesda I just saw. I don't know what they've got, but it's supposed to be just like you're in uh, Santosa or something. And, you know, um, uh, we live five minutes from each other. So happy to have you to have a beer in our backyard. Amitav, that's a great idea. We'll start our own ASEAN centrality right here in Bethesda. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.